Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm joined by Chris Collins. We both work here at Garden Organic. We're here to give you advice and tips on organic gardening. This month, it really feels like spring is starting and you're probably raring to get out and growing. Chris and I talk about seed sowing, helping you to get perfect results every time. We talk about compost and some of those jobs which give you a head start before the busy growing season. Each month we're joined by a guest whose life is shaped by gardening and this month I meet award-winning garden designer and Gardener's World presenter Mark Lane. If, if one person does one thing in their garden and then everybody else can do one thing, then adding all of that up together will make a tremendous difference to our flora and our fauna. And finally, our post bag always brings interesting questions. We discuss planting direct into no-dig raised beds, how to line a hanging basket in the most sustainable way, and ideas for exciting different veg to grow. But first, a quick reminder that this podcast is supported by our brilliant sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue. Whether you're ready to take your first steps into organic gardening or planning your next plot, organiccatalogue.com is the right place for you. They're proud to offer a complete range of organic gardening products from seeds and plants to equipment. This month they suggest trying a seaweed supplement called Chase SM3 Formula. It's a natural plant growth stimulant made from responsibly harvested seaweed. So shop online at organiccatalogue.com and if you're a member of Garden Organic you'll get 10% off. Now I'm off to the virtual potting shed to join Chris. Morning, Chris. How are you? Morning, Sarah. I'm very good, thank you. How about you? Oh, I'm just full of the joys of spring. <laughs> I know, it's, yes. Exciting time, isn't it? I, I really do wake up smiling at the moment. It's really nice. I couldn't agree more. There's something about spring. When it starts springing, you can hear it, you can yeah. see it, and you can smell it. Yeah, the, the smell is particularly poignant, I always find, as you just suddenly get that scent in, in your nostrils, don't you? And that feeling of familiarity, you know, here comes spring again. Like an old friend. I think this year, perhaps more than ever, because we've all been confined and, and locked down and though the gardener in me is saying be cautious because we've still got frosts and we've still got you know winter weather to come the human being in me says oh please I want to get out I'm loving yeah. it yeah I think it is going to be more poignant definitely we've been through a strange strange year and uh, nothing like nature to give you a lift is there Sarah that's very true Chris that's very true so what are you going to be doing this month well it's all about the seed sowing isn't it really I'm all prepped up for that I've been on my allotment it's been very wet down there actually because obviously we had very cold period and it's been then it was raining quite a lot in London and so I've been kind of staying off it I don't want to destroy the soil structure by walking all over it so I've been staying off it but I've had some nice sort of sunny days and a quite nice temperature so I'm just getting all the everything prepped really I've been in my polytunnel I've cleaned all that out I've got my potting bench ready I've got all my seeds to sow so I am chomping at the bit really you do make an important point I've got to be not too overexcitable in case you know we get caught by a late cold snap which is obviously half of the course with the British weather I think we should talk about seed sowing because I'm guessing everyone is keen to do it and it's one of nature's miracles I know seed sowing should be so simple and, and nature herself gets it right so why why do you think us gardeners are so scared of it and, and, and what goes wrong I wonder Chris let's just have a little seed sowing masterclass shall we yes yeah, certainly you can sow some seeds at the moment i'm putting my chilies in my peppers my aubergine and i what i've done is i've cleaned out my propagators so i have a set of propagators at home i make sure i wash them thoroughly so they're all sterilized nice and clean 
I then choose, I've got a very good peat-free compost. It has to be a seed compost. None of this multi-purpose, none of this potting compost. Seed compost is very low in nutrient, and it's just a perfect, very crumbly, perfect bed. I'll then take the seed tray, and I'll fill it up to about a centimetre from the top, and then I will sieve over the top of that. A sieve is a very important item for my seed sowing. So I've got a really crumbly layer. I then take a thing called a tamper. A tamper and a sieve. Well, I love those names alone. And I'll gently firm down that soil. So if you can imagine, seed tray with a really level, nice, gently firmed seed surface. And all those seeds are going to sit on top and make sure they make proper contact with the soil. I get nice, even germination. I will then what I could do what I call snake the seed. If I'm sowing quite a lot of seed, which means I start in the left-hand corner, I go up the seed tray, and then I come down and I go across, up and down and across, up and down and across. That gives me even distribution. And then take my sieve again, and I sieve over the top of it just to cover those seeds up, okay? And there I have a perfect crumbly seed bed for my seeds to germinate, and all of them contacting the soil properly. And then, of course, I will label and date so I know what's going on, because I plan to sow a lot of seeds this spring. And watering? Yeah, well, watering, I've got a good little tip for that. I will take them out onto the balcony, the important thing about watering is you don't wash out all your good works. You've got this lovely tray of seeds. I then take a can with a rose on it. I turn the rose upwards so it's facing upwards, okay? I then start away from the seed tray. I go over it and back over it again. And what happens is this water comes out very fine and upright, and so you get this like, very gentle shower over the soil surface. Nothing gets washed out. Everything's in place. Gives it a good drink, and then you're away. It sounds so simple, Chris. So from what you're saying, I'm going to highlight what I think can go wrong and what people feel nervous about and why sometimes seed sowing doesn't work. First of all, you made the point about the potting mix should be well firmed down. And and that's important. And if you haven't got this thing called a tamper, you can actually use the back of your hand or your own fist, just something to press that potting mix well down. You don't want air pockets so that these seeds and their little tiny emerging roots get contact with the soil. The other thing you mentioned about using seed compost as opposed to general potting compost, and that's absolutely a must because it's much, much finer. Again, you won't get the air pockets. Is it too wet or too dry? I like your idea of watering with a rose, Chris. I tend to water my compost before I sow Mm. because I have to say the number of times I've watered and all the seeds have just come up and, and have been washed out by the watering. So I make my compost moist before I sow the seeds. Then it's the tiniest bit of watering afterwards. And that way the seed is resting in damp compost. And then finally, the other important thing is when you're sowing indoors is to make sure that you have sufficient light. When the seed germinates, then it's got light to grow. If you don't have enough light, it will get what's called etiolated, which means the, the stem gets very long and thin and pale, and it probably won't form good roots underneath the soil. Do you agree, Chris? Yes, definitely put it in the lightest situation you've got. And also I would stroke and turn, which is quite, quite important because because you're indoors. I mean, this maybe not necessarily applies to someone who's lucky enough to have a greenhouse because you get level, level light levels. And I think that, but with it indoors, like my, in me, in my office, I put them all in my windows in my office, is every day I turn the tray, I turn the tray. So the ceiling isn't bending too far towards the light. I also run my hand over them to mimic the wind, etc. So I want a squat little stocky little seedling before it gets pricked out and moved on. Have you tried making your own seed compost, Chris? What mix would you use? Well, I would. I certainly have in the past. I would use leaf mould. If I'm lucky enough to have leaf mould, which is a very precious commodity, by the way, and I'm making a load of it now, I would use that and I'd probably mix it with a bit of silver sand. The reason I'd use leaf mould is because it's very low in nutrient. You don't want a nutrient-rich soil with seeds. 
They'll put on too much soft growth. You'll get into difficulties. So if you can't make your own leaf mould, then always, always, always choose a peat-free seed compost. Yeah, it's so important. Peat is important in bogs and for wildlife. And it's important it stays where it is. It simply isn't necessary in the garden. So whatever compost you buy, whether it's seed compost, potting mix or whatever, just make sure it's peat-free. I know it costs more, but it's worth it. They're your seeds, they're they're precious, they're your plants, they're precious. Spend that little bit extra. And peat-free is now really good quality, isn't it, Chris? If you buy it certainly is, it's come a long way. It's come a long way from where, you know, I remember when it first came out. When I was working at Westminster Abbey, I I, I went peep free in it, and it was difficult because there was just wasn't up to the standards really when you're growing on quite a big scale. But now there's no excuse, and it's interesting mentioning the expense thing because really the amount of food I got off my allotment last year saved me hundreds and hundreds of pounds if I'd been going to a supermarket to buy it. So don't look at it as a false economy. Don't go well that bag's ten quid cheaper than that bag because that's not how it works. Even if you just get five tomato plants and a pepper plant. You will make that money up through the course of the season. So, you know, I think we've said this a lot of times on here. The world isn't our pantry. We can't just keep helping ourselves to stuff every time we feel like it. We need to, you know, it's a give and take game we have with nature and we need to respect that. And taking peat out of the equation is an environmental disaster. We definitely know that. Um, If you want further advice on growing seeds, on how to sow seeds and and successfully, go to the Garden Organic website. We've got plenty of stuff there. We've got six steps to successful seed sowing, which sounds a little bit of a tongue twister, but have a look on the website. Um, Compost. Let's talk about compost. It's the month for spreading compost, wouldn't you? (laughs) It's your favourite job, isn't it? You love love this compost for its spreading nature. Yeah. Again, it's a, it's a miracle, it's a minor miracle compost. It really well, not a minor, a major one. You just there's something about it. you never kind of get your head around it fully, do you? That you take this, you know, what you what would look like no no use to anyone material and turn it into this wonderful black gold. You know, it really is special. I think what also what I love about it and what I understand more and more is it's the life within it. We tend to talk about compost as if it's a sort of inert thing, but there is so much life in a compost heap. There's the worms, there's the springtails, there's the microbes, the fungi. All this extraordinary soil life is going on in the compost heap. And if you add it to your own soil, then you get this lovely, lovely equation, this transfer, this generosity that this life will process the compost and release the nutrients which your plants can then take up through their root systems i just yeah, it's love incredible it. it is and also you you just pointed out there it, it, they're doing all the work for us you know all we got to do is put it together and then it does all the work for us and it's just that little miracle of nature that and it just makes everything grow so much better that that soil health is the key to successful growing And people talk about, quite rightly, talk about the wildlife in your garden and encouraging the wildlife. And I always think, yes, and that includes the life in your soil. That's wildlife as well. Absolutely. It all counts. Is that expression, isn't it? There's more life in a teaspoon, a tablespoon of soil than there are human beings on the planet. That's how alive it is. You know, it's quite an incredible little statement that, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. So I'm going to be emptying. I've got three heaps. I'm, I live in luxury. I know I have the space to have three heaps, but I'm going to be emptying one of them definitely out onto the soil and roughly turning it in to prepare the soil for growing. If you have one of those green Daleks, as I call them, 
probably now would be a good time to completely empty it out. You've probably got some well-rotted compost at the bottom of it. Use that to spread on the soil. Put anything that hasn't rotted down back into the bin and then keep adding to it. Yeah, sounds perfect. I mean, the, re- the way to think about compost, especially when you spend all that time getting it to, to form, is it's like very valuable source. Don't go throwing it around willy-nilly. Really think about where you're putting it, where you're concentrating it. It's, it's our biggest asset in many ways. And it's a slow release as well. The nutrients are released slowly as the soil life works, as the compost life works. So it's not like you're giving your plants an instant boost like an an artificial fertilizer will. Uh You're actually building in a slow release all through the growing season, which is why now is a good time to actually put it in. Yeah, and let the worms, let the worms take it down. I'll have a couple of beds I'm going to spread it on I'm going to let the worms do the work I'll put it on the top let them pull it all in for me you don't you know in a way I mean I love to dig because I've always been someone who's dug all my life as a gardener but really the worms will do the work for you there's another thing that's quite a good organic principle and and to do with pests and diseases is as the soil warms up it's a good idea to hoe around fruit trees and bushes and leave the soil exposed for a few days because in that soil will be all the little um what's the word i'm looking for like lava like leather jackets and things like that yeah all those little sort of um, potential root eating pests yeah all those little larvae will be that's the word expose them then the birds will come down and eat them so just leave the soil exposed for a few days and then by the end of the month start mulching it with compost that way you'll also be suppressing the weeds which would be growing up around your fruit trees brilliant i've had a little victory on my allotment actually because of people either side of me they have they have apple trees i think they normally spray them but i persuaded them to put up a load of bird boxes and bird feeders instead because um i think that could do a bit of control for them that's better (laughs) well aphids will be out and about this month and and a big word on aphids is don't panic don't get those artificial toxic poison sprays you don't know what you're killing with them leave the aphids not least because there's every chance that you've got a family of blue tits nearby who would depend upon those aphids to feed their babies yeah that's right your problem is somebody else's dinner i always think so yeah, <laughs> let those blue tits do the work yeah. chris i always turn to you when we talk about lawns but i'm guessing this is the month that you start looking at the lawn it certainly is. I mean, there's some quite big operations, sort of March, late March, I would certainly be looking at it. You'll probably find it's been quite a wet winter in uh, in London. There's a lot of clay here. It might be looking a bit sorry for itself at the moment. So it's a good time to maybe run a scarifier over it. If you've just a small area, you can use what's a lawn rake. And all you're kind of doing then is taking out all the dead thatch that lies underneath the live grass. And that also kind of breaks the stolons. Grass move around by underground stems. You put a scarifier over it or a lawn rake, it breaks those stems, you get new crowns falling, it thickens up the sward. It's also good if it's been wet, maybe just to spike it, you know, just to get the fork into it, aerate it a little bit. And then I would buy yourself a bag of ryegrass seed if you've got a family garden that everyone uses. Big bag of that and overseed it as well and thicken it up that way too. It might start putting on growth. I think that grass is always a good indicator of soil temperature. It's the first plant to really start moving. If it gets above five degrees temperature of the soil, grass will grow so you might find that after all that operations you get a spurt of growth just tip it off the first cut don't cut it too too low and make sure you're thickening that sward out all the way great thank you chris so i guess to sum up 
What I would say this month is, first of all, yes, get sowing on your seeds, not outdoors yet, because it's still the soil is still too cold. But if you've got a greenhouse, polytunnel, or even just a kitchen window, get sowing. It'll be so satisfying. You mentioned about the ground being wet. It's been ridiculously wet in lots of parts of the country. Take care not to walk on the soil. You will yeah. compact it. You'll, you'll press it down, this wet soil. Keep off it as much as you can. And thirdly... We know that spring is springing, but be wary. As a gardener, be wary because frost is always around the corner in March. It certainly is. I think the other thing I like to do, because I want to get ahead, is I will choose a couple of beds on the allotment, which will I'll grow all my fast crops in, my salad crops, my radishes, all those things I really love. I'll put fleece down. I'll pin them some fleece down with some tent pegs over those areas just to encourage that soil to warm up a bit by the end of this month. Chris, talking of your allotment, you're going to have a border all down one side, weren't you? With yes. flowering plants. Yes, I am. I've started on that. I've got um, quite a lot of sort of helianthus and, uh, and those sort of perennial herbaceous plants. But I'm also going to add summer flowering bulbs in. I've got to, what I want to make sure they're organic. So I have a little bit of a challenge because I, they'll probably come from overseas, probably from Holland. But I'd love to get some hemocorlis, that kind of stuff. And having those flowers alongside your veg patch is a brilliant way to attract pollinators. Bees, hoverflies, butterflies. It's a corridor, isn't it? A pollinating corridor. I have a feeling we're going to be talking more about that next month because that's when insect life really comes to Yeah, it really starts to get going, yeah. Oh, in the meantime, enjoy yourself, won't you? I yes, think. I will. It's uh, it's a really nice. It's, it's going outside time, it really is, isn't it? Think about seed sowing. Yeah, we all deserve it. Cheers, Sarah. Bye, Chris. And now I have great pleasure in introducing our guest this month. Mark Lane was awarded Garden Designer of the Year, and his work is testament to great skill with planting schemes, but also how to bring organic principles into garden design. He works tirelessly as an ambassador for horticultural charities. I so enjoyed meeting him, albeit down the line, and for this I have to apologise. Our internet connection was poor, and you may struggle with the blips in the online quality. I am so sorry. Please stick with it. Mark is an inspirational gardener and grower. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And it's a delight to talk to you. Um, it's you. sunny outside the window with me. I suppose I hope it is with you as well. It's a gorgeous day. Um, Mark, you're well known as a gardener's world presenter with all your writing and your presentation and your media presence. But can we go back to the beginning and talk about what brought you into the garden in the first place? Right back to your early years, if you want to. Yes, of course. I suppose my real love of gardening really came from my grandparents, like I think so many people. Yes. And my paternal grandparents, uh, they had a large garden uh, in Lansing. And my grandfather used to have a very large vegetable area at the bottom end of the garden. And he taught me all about feeding the soil and about not using any type of chemical whatsoever. Oh, splendid. Which was, you know, tremendous to learn that right at an, an early young age. So I used to follow him around with a little blue truck and he taught me how to sow seeds. He taught me how to tie in plants, how to deadhead and just generally care and nurture for them. And then my grandmother, she was actually uh, a flower arranger. She taught me how to put colours together and textures. They really sort of, I suppose, led the way, led my way into gardening. 
I do think there is that, sorry to interrupt, but I do think there is that magical relationship between grandparent and child. And whether it's because the grandparent has more time than the parent. Very much so. And I think it is that. I think it's that fact when you go to your, your grandparents, it's a very sort of special moment as well. And being able to be taught by them, I think, is a lovely way of sort of sharing knowledge and sharing skills between the generations. And they and love, love doing the sharing, don't they? That's the they great really gift of sharing. They really do. So that was my sort of earliest memories when it came to gardening. I actually grew up in, a, in an apartment uh, in Hove, and we used to have uh, communal gardening spaces outside. And just one day I said to my mother, can we go out and maybe just plant something? And I think it was probably something like petunias or pansies back then. And she said, yeah, I'm sure we can do that. Because gardeners used to come in and mow the lawns, and there used to be these very sad-looking circular beds that just had a single rose in the centre. And I just thought, I kept thinking to myself, I must have been about seven or eight years of age. And I just said to my mum, can we go and do this? And she said, yes, I'm sure we can. So we did. What a lovely mum. Exactly. And then remarkably, within, I would say, probably about 18 months to two years, every single apartment um, had their own little area within the garden. How fantastic. So So an early example of of community gardening happening. Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, this was sort of uh, early to mid 70s. It was a lovely way of getting to know the neighbours. And I used to love just sort of popping out there and having a cup of tea with them, just having a good old chat. Well, that brings me very neatly, actually, onto your own garden designs, because you've recently been awarded Landscape Garden Designer of the Year. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Which is fantastic. I'm I'm really thrilled for you. Congratulations. And I I wanted to ask you, for you, you see the garden from a wheelchair height, and that gives you a different perspective. So you're seeing plants at a different level to someone who is standing. Yeah, absolutely. Most of the time, people, you know, when they go into the garden, if they're not gardening, will go out and just sit down and, you know, with a cuppa and just sort of have a nice chat with someone. But for me, I'm always and constantly seeing the garden from that level. And it's been a wonderful experience, actually, because I can now, especially, I design in layers. So I design both in vertical and horizontal layers. And what I mean by that is obviously horizontal layers will do, you know, you have the ground, then you have your bulbs and then you have herbaceous shrubs and trees. But on a vertical layer, it's about seeing perspective and it's about also seeing how, again, those plants work together, but at different rates and also at different heights. I think that because of that, it is a unique perspective because I have this sort of slightly different askew view on looking at plants. And I hope, hope anyway, that when the clients obviously see the gardens and they see their planting come up, that they can see all these different layers coming through quite clearly, purely because of my lower position. It it gives an added depth. Is the concept of organic and sustainability, is that important within your garden design? Absolutely. So for me, every single garden should follow the principles of sustainability and biodiversity. And when clients especially sort of ask, they sort of ask, well, what does that actually mean? And I say, well, you know, if we think of it in simple terms, it's really sort of a lot of it is common sense. It's about retaining sort of existing vegetation and habitat wherever we possibly can. It's uh, looking at the types of soil that we've got and working with those soils rather than introducing a whole load of new soils. 
It's about planting possibly new trees. Um, it's about sort of targeting the specific species that we can attract to your garden. And also about sort of creating new habitats and sort of wildlife and friendly planting. As soon as you sort of say those sort of things and the clients really get it. And of course, it then goes on to, the, you know, you know, about caring for the garden and for years to come. And the whole thing about, you know, don't throw away all of your garden waste, you know, turn it into the most wonderful thing, you know, garden compost and add it back to the garden. And then at the same time, you know, have a little bit of a, a wild area which can attract wildlife. But do you find you ever get kickback from a client who wants their garden to look immaculate, rather like they like their house to look immaculate, especially if they've got guests coming and they don't want to have something left more relaxed for the sake of wildlife and habitat? No, no, absolutely. I mean, there are clients like that. And I would always say to them, well, there are ways that we can deal with that and obviously we can have lovely clipped hedging we have a nice mixture of different types of hedging then that's going to attract different types of wildlife into the garden and then also you know how about sort of introducing more plants with flowers with open flowers so we can attract the bees and the pollinators you i think you can have both but you can have it a bit more wild and a bit more naturalistic but you can also have it really sort of clipped and, and manicured. It sounds um, really thoughtful, really thoughtful design work, Mark. I, I, I'm impressed. Do you detect that there's a trend towards this sort of gardening more? Yes, there is, definitely. I mean, naturalistic planting has been, you know, it's been increasing and increasing, especially over the last five or seven years. I think more clients, obviously, with the way that everything has been going on, especially from, you know, David Attenborough films with regards to plastic and the environment, and people are getting more tuned into this and they're realizing that we have been destroying our planet and just by doing something in our garden can make a difference if if one person does one thing in their garden and then everybody else can do one thing in their one in their one garden then adding all of that up together will make a tremendous difference to our flora and our fauna yeah, I agree. And programs like Gardener's World, which I know you 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 often present, yeah. I've noticed very much the trend there towards a more thoughtful, relaxed style of gardening, which again puts wildlife at its centre. Very much so. Yeah, very, very much so. I think it's, it's organic a... without actually saying the actual word organic, isn't it? It is. It's exactly that. And I think the fact that, you know, no longer are we seen on the television spraying things with horrible pesticides and insecticides, and we are literally working from the soil upwards. It's very much the way we work at Garden Organic as well, is that even if you don't feel that you've gone deep green organic, so to speak, mm. we are there to help you and just introduce certain things that will move you towards that, that understanding of how important nature is in your life. Now, you talked about your own personal green pill, I think you call mm. gardening and being out and about. Do you want to explain that one to me? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's, um, after my accident, um, I was, had a long rehabilitation period. And I was very, very fortunate that where I was, was the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital at Stanmore, there was a horticultural therapist. She, even sort of during my very darkest times, she made me realise that I could still garden and I could still get out there and enjoy myself. And that sort of stuck with me. Even to today, whenever I'm feeling a little bit stressed or I just want to go out and feel a bit more relaxed, 
then I go and take my green pill and literally just go outside. And for me, it works wonders. My shoulders drop, my breathing slows down, my heart rate slows down. I feel less anxious. And before I know it, my mind is wandering off and I'm thinking about different things to what I was thinking about before. And I think for me, you know, we all need a little bit of a green pill every now and then. I know not everyone has a garden and not everyone, you know, has a, a large public park nearby. But even just houseplant, if people have houseplants and they care and nurture for those, that in itself can be their green pill. And for me, it has really helped both my mental and my physical health and well-being. It's the nurturing I, I'm getting partly, isn't it? It's it's nurturing, it's looking after something and watching it grow, despite whatever your own personal circumstances are. Absolutely, very much so. I mean, you know, after my accident, as I said, I went to some very dark places and I thought that there was, you know, there wasn't a light at the end of the tunnel. I think what it is, with gardening and with uh, growing plants, there's sort of a synergy, I suppose, with our own life cycle. Because of that, you sort of really care for these plants and nurture them because you know eventually, you know, they will die and we know eventually that we will die. It's about that whole cyclical environment, I suppose, and it's that sort of biophilic need for us to be around nature. I think there's also quite an interesting link with the sense of the delayed gratification, if I could call it that. At Garden Organic, we've worked with drug and alcohol dependency unit Mm. and helping people to understand that you don't get an instant fix. It's an act of faith when you put those seeds in the ground that there's going to be a period of nothing happening and then they will germinate and then you'll see the fruits of your labour. And that's very meaningful to someone who is dependent on the instant fix of drugs or alcohol. It's, It's learning to take the natural rhythms, as you referred to, and beginning to adapt to that. Yes, very much so. That's very, very true. And you also act as an ambassador, I see, for a number of horticultural charities. You feel very determined. I I get the impression that you want people who have disabilities of whatever sort to still to be able to access and enjoy horticulture and gardening. Very much so. I'm a great believer in showing the word ability and disability. A wonderful example of that is I visited one of the residences of Leonard Cheshire and I was designing a garden for them. And there was a very severely disabled, physically disabled gentleman there. And, and he kept staring at this potted begonia throughout the whole of the chat. He was completely silent. I could see that the fact that he wanted to, he wanted to have a talk. And I said, do you enjoy being out in the garden? And he said, yes. Would you like to do some gardening? And he said, well, I can't really do anything. And I said, oh, I, I said, I'm a great believer that there is a gardening job Job that you can do no matter your level of ability are you able to move just your your thumb and your first finger and he said yes i can do that brilliant and i went and got the uh, potted begonia off the table you can deadhead that begonia for me he was absolutely amazed and the smile across his face well it was an absolute picture and it meant everything to me and a sense of achievement on his part as well very much so very much so What do you think about the numbers that have taken up gardening in the past year to do with COVID and lockdown? It's exciting, isn't it? I think it's incredible. I mean, there there was a piece of research that came out, I can't remember who it was, and they said six out of ten households now do more gardening, active gardening, than they have ever done before lockdown. I think it's very exciting, and I think 
people have really started to get on to the whole thing about growing their own. It's brilliant for sort of educating kids about, you know, where vegetables and fruit comes from rather than from a bag or a plastic container from a, a supermarket. But again, it's the same thing that you're referring to. Even if you just sow a few lettuce seeds or a few cress seeds and you watch them grow, that sense of achievement is is so affirming, especially when you're in a difficult circumstances like lockdown. Absolutely. We I know we know from again sales figures and research that millennials in particular have taken up indoor plants in a tremendous way. I just think it's a I think it's a wonderful thing. And I just hope that after lockdown it just continues. I know that you know people will go back to their, their busy lifestyles, but I have a funny feeling that people have they've reconnected with nature. That's been very, very important. And I think that no one will want to lose that. I agree. I agree. And even if you do have some disasters, and we we all do, it doesn't matter how many things you you are. (laughs) (laughs) That damn slug is out to get you. It doesn't matter whether you're a top gardener or not. You you talk about playing with colours and textures and things. You actually, when you were younger, you studied art and, and painting, and that was an important part of your life. Yeah, very much so. So um, I was a very keen artist as a child. I used to always go into the countryside and I used to paint landscape, wildlife and butterflies and flora. I, I really, really enjoyed that. And then obviously, you know, O-levels and A-levels come along. And I then had to sort of decide what on earth I was going to do at university. And I was also a musician, so I was a flautist as well. And I had the opportunity to go to the Royal College of Music to actually become a, a professional flautist. But art won the day. And I went and studied art history at uh, University College London. Oh, so you could have you can go into the garden and play the flute. You can go into the garden and paint a, a flower. This is you're multi talented. I'm so impressed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. As my mother, as my mother says, I'm very creative. Is the way that she always says it. Ah, well, that will never leave you either. That's a great gift, for the, you know, throughout your life, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, very much so. So where did all the writing come from? Because you, you do a lot of writing and yeah. clearly you're also at ease with, with using words and being creative with them. Uh, I just love being able to describe things and explain things in a way which most people will be able to understand. Um, Tell me about the book, the most recent book. I love this. This is The Royal Garden. It is. It's Royal Gardens of the World, and it's a sumptuous exploration, I suppose, of 21 of the world's most celebrated royal gardens. These are gardens which... I believe, have had a great impact on garden history, garden design, gardening in general. Give us an um, example. Well, the other, the other tricky thing was actually also coming up with the idea, what is a royal garden? Because a royal garden could be belong to a huge falling estate, you know, attached to a palace or a castle. It could be a personal garden, such as Highgrove, or it could be a royal botanical garden. I fell in love with Herrenhausen in Germany. It's a, it's a beautiful royal garden. It's all on a very much a level level ground, surrounded by water, and it's it's very, you know it's elaborate. It's got parterres, etc. But what I love about it is the fact that it's also moving with the times. Gardeners and the restorers and the conservators obviously have to be aware of people coming to visit. While they need to maintain that historical setting, they also need to keep up to date when it comes to things like planting. Mm. 
But, you know, Highgrove was obviously a perfect example for sustainability and biodiversity and organic planting. I'm glad you uh, mentioned Highgrove because I, I was thinking, how can we possibly within the same breath think of somewhere like Versailles, for instance, which was designed to denote the power and absolute monarchy of Louis XIV. And then we get Highgrove, which frankly is quite domestic in yes. in the way it's presented. And what a statement that makes about our, our man who was born to be king, you know, our future absolutely, king. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, he, I think it's... As he said, as he's getting older, all he ever wants to do is just plant trees. Uh, but it is, it's, you know, it's a very personal garden, but it's just, you're absolutely right in the sense that even though it is large, I think so many people can relate to it because it feels just like anybody's garden. The whole idea of organic principles and nurturing the countryside and nurturing the wildlife and nurturing the flora within his space is just absolutely marvellous. And you're absolutely right. And, you know, for our future King, uh, his love of nature and wildlife, I think, will shine through for years to come. And tell me, Mark, what do you do when you're not gardening? Does the flute come out or does the, the paint pop? Um, when I'm not gardening, I, I, I completely veg out, to be truthfully honest. I think because there's so much rattling around in my brain at any one time, I just need to completely veg. And that could sometimes just be sitting in the garden or maybe it's just watching television. I find it I find it difficult not to think about plants or gardening or design. I love the way you use the phrase veg out. I can't think of anybody more appropriate to use the word <laughs> veg out when you, when you're still thinking about gardening and growing and plants. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> Mark, it's been a delight talking to you. It really has. Thank you very much indeed. You've given me a new perspective on garden design. And it's really nice to hear your thoughtfulness towards making garden designs more organic, more sustainable towards wildlife. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a massive pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. time to open the post bag and I'm joined by Chris, Hannah and Anton. Hannah, what have you got for us? Okay, so last autumn I created two raised beds for growing veg. They're now full of compost as I didn't have much soil and it's a mix of my own homemade compost and some old bags. Is it okay to plant straight into them? Anton, what would you recommend? Okay, depends a little bit on the state of your home compost. You really want to make sure that it's well rotted down. And the way to tell that is really, was it cool when you took it out? And are there any sort of recognisable pieces in there? Can you still see sort of bits of orange peel or Brussels sprout stalks in there? Because you don't want to be planting into compost that hasn't finished um, rotting down. Home compost is slightly different to your bagged compost. Bagged sort of multi-purpose compost has been sort of specially formulated so you can plant in into it. It's, it's a mixture of bulky materials and nutrients, so it is that would be okay to plant into. Chris, what would your experience of this be? Well, on my balcony, I tend to grow quite a lot of salad crops, quick crops, and um, and I, obviously, if you've got a good compost in there that I've been growing plants in the season before, I would probably add a bit to it. I'd probably get a bag of seed compost, peat-free seed compost, and just dress the top of the pot by about five centimetres. And then I can sow those salad crops into drills into, into that pot. So it just means those seeds are in a low-nutrition seed compost. 
and it'll give them a nice crumbly, easy start. The roots will get in, the, the, the shoots will come up and it just gives them a kick start. I wouldn't try and sow any seed in anything that's too bulky or heavy. I think what I'd add to that is that I do very little sowing straight out into the bed. I tend to sow in the greenhouse in trays. And the reason I do that is because then I'm raising a plant which is quite sturdy, quite strong, which I then plant out. And because of that, that plant is probably going to be able to withstand pests and diseases better. So if you've got a raised bed full of homemade compost, the chances are you've got a raised bed full of slugs and snails. And so by having a sturdy plant, that should be able to withstand the attack of those slugs and snails. Yeah, I would go with that. I mean, especially if you're growing on a small scale, you've got the resources to be able to grow your plants a bit bigger before you put them out. And then they're a bit bigger and meaner and able to withstand the slug attack. So yeah definitely good advice there great thank you so moving on to our second question what do you advise for lining hanging baskets to plant flowers and herbs and is there a way to avoid using plastic chris what would you say yeah well i'm a big uh, hanging basket man as you know on my balcony they're a great way to increase the volume of space i have to grow plants and uh, i wouldn't be without them absolutely no need for plastic at all i would never put plastic into a hanging basket my preference i mean there's a real myriad of choices out there now but my preference always has been is I just love moss. I like to lime with moss. And the reason is very simple is I never plant just into the top of the basket. I plant in layers, almost like building a cake, if you like, a gatto. So I plant through the sides. And moss is very easy, very um, easy to do that with. It's also very good at keeping the moisture around the roots. It's an indicator if it starts to dry out. I know the basket needs a drink. You have to be a bit careful about where you're getting it from. No going into woodlands and ripping up moss from there because you might be damaging plants and destroying habitats. I, I think a great way is if you know someone who's got a bad lawn and needs a bit of work on it and it's full of moss, go along with your springbok, your rake, and drag it all out of that lawn and use that or get it from a sustainable source. I sometimes use a thing called sisal, which is like a, it's a plant, a wiry plant, it's a very wool-like substance. I can line that as well. And the same reason, moss or sisal, it means that the, the, the air can move in and out of the basket. You know, roots need oxygen, so you get a healthier plant as well. So my preference is moss, without a doubt. There are a lot of alternatives if you can't get hold of moss from a sustainable source. I've noticed that now there's a lot more alternatives that are using recycled materials as liners. So you can get recycled jute or coir, and they're all quite useful because I guess what you're looking at is how easy is it to actually position it within the basket and to make cuts in it? So as Chris says, you can plant through them. What do they actually look like when they're empty and the plants haven't yet come to maturity? Have you got a horrible, bright green, very artificial looking lining to your basket? So have a little think about the aesthetics of it as well as the practicalities. One year I used wool. It's a recycled product. It's from wool that can't be sold for other reasons. And I found that worked really, really well. It holds the water very well and it's easy to plant through. Anton, what about you? My only experience is that often birds tend to find it a very useful material for nesting. So that's just something to, to be aware of. I mean, Sometimes people have even suggested using straw. I, I don't think that's that practical because it is very messy to use and birds will tend to pull it out. I do have two magpies that I've set up. They're my neighbours have set up in the tree outside my window and they're, <laughs> they're nicking my moss all the time. But I don't begrudge them. I know. <laughs> I'll have to just top it up and part with it. They are incredibly amusing to have around, I have to say. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so moving on to the final question. 
someone's written in to say that they're interested in growing something different this year. They're pretty confident with the usual veg, so potatoes, tomatoes, beans, etc. But they'd like to try something a bit more exciting. And what can we recommend? Anton? Yes, well, there's a whole myriad of exciting things that have been grown for years, actually, in the UK, particularly on allotments. I mean, I've looked around a lot of allotments in Birmingham and Coventry, and I can tell which country people are from just by looking at their allotment. Particularly the Jamaican people have big tradition of growing and you can see that they're growing this crop called callaloo which is this really nice tasting spinach well it's light spinach it's actually an amaranth plant and it's got a different texture to spinach it's nice also you see a lot of um, Bangladeshis and Indians growing on allotments things you often see them growing are fresh chickpeas they grow them for the for the green chickpeas which you really can't get in the shops and in slightly warmer sheltered places, they grow a thing called a doody. We, we know it as a bottle gourd. Um, it can grow to the size of a small child, but it's also nice when it's eaten at a bit of a smaller stage. It's, it's really nice in curries. You can also even make a pudding out of it. It's, it's called halbo. It's not like the Greek halbo, but it's that you grate up this gourd and you add sort of lots of sweet things and it comes out like rice pudding. So there's all sorts of exciting things. But... I'd particularly, if you're just looking for one thing, I'd go for the green chickpeas because they're, they're really tasty. Anton, how do you spell a doody? Um, lots of different ways because it seems to be a loose translation. It's often spelt D-U-D-I is one way. Sometimes it's got an H in various places as well. I've even seen it spelt with two O's. The Latin is Lagunaria Sicuraria if you want to look it up. Well, there you go for your internet searches. And is it easy to get hold of seed for these plants? I, I quite like the idea of growing a doody. Is it difficult to get hold of the seed? No, you'll find it even in quite a lot of the this common seed catalogues now. It's, it's often just known as bottle gourd as well. So you, you'll see it in all sorts of places. A lot of these varieties are also in our heritage seed library. Unfortunately, it's closed for orders this year now. But in the future, it's a good place to look because these have been grown by UK growers and they've saved the seed over quite a long time. So they've got a good track record of growing in the UK. What would you recommend, Chris? Yeah, well, I'm going to come inside for my choice and it's not edible, but it's one of my great garden challenges. And I love a little plant, tiny little plant called a lithop or the living stone. In fact, a few years ago, no one had heard of them, but they seem to be now getting trendy with this big wave of houseplant growing, which is a great thing. They come from South Africa and they're called living stones. And if you see one, you'll see why it's a tiny little succulent used as a mottled surface, has very, very beautiful flower if you can get it to flower as well, like composite type flowers, but it is incredibly sensitive to overwatering. So I have a few in my window. I have four in my window this year and I haven't watered them since October. I've literally let them sit there. And if you give them a little bit too much water in the spring and the summer, maybe they can just turn up toes. In fact, one of them died on me in the winter and I don't know why I think it did it just to annoy me. It's a bit of a man versus plant challenge me and the lithops, but they are just incredibly Sometimes, you know, that expression, small things in small packages, they're just one of those plants that pull you in. They're really fascinating little things. And Sarah, do you have anything a little bit different growing in your garden? Hannah, I'm ashamed to say I'm very, very unadventurous in my growing. But what I do tend to grow, and certainly for veg and fruit, are things that I can't get hold of as organic, or if they are organic, they're ridiculously expensive. So it's relatively simple things like raspberries, strawberries, 
asparagus. These are all things that are hard to find in the shops as organic. And the pleasure of picking your own just can't be beaten. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Thank you. Okay, so I think that's all for this month. Thank you very much, guys. Have a lovely springtime in your garden, your allotment, your balcony, wherever. And see you next month. See you later. Have a good day. Thanks, Sarah. Bye-bye. Bye. Sadly, we've come to the end. I hope you've been inspired to get going on this year's organic growing journey. After our winter confinement, it's lovely to see the days getting longer and to hear the birds sing. Never has the natural world felt more precious. Next month, Chris meets one of the country's top entomologists, Dr Ian Bedford. It's a fascinating discussion all about the role of insects in the garden. And if you like our podcasts, be sure to press subscribe. Then you won't miss an episode. And write us a review. It won't take long and we'd love to hear your thoughts. Don't forget, there's loads of information on the Garden Organic website, www.gardenorganic.org.uk, about all of the topics we discussed today. And why not head over to theorganiccatalogue.com for all your seeds and gardening needs. Bye for now. Our thanks to Kevin McLeod for providing the music.